Now, one of the things that that needs to teach us, maybe it's an extreme example, but it is still an example of how we tend to be. And that is, if we're given the opportunity to determine what righteousness is, we will always mess up. When righteousness is up to me to decide, I'm always going to decide in my favor. That's the human condition. So if we reduce righteousness to an external, which is what we tend to do, you know, the old saying, Baptist, good Baptist boys don't, what's that? They don't smoke, drink, or cuss, or chew, and they don't date girls who do. Uh, whether you well i I'm not, I just keep myself out of this discussion for a little bit left to our own standards we're going to get it wrong and we're going to always decide in our favor if we reduce righteousness to externals then we'll pick the externals that we don't have a problem with and call it righteous Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been helping us understand a little more of what the life with God really ought to look like. And in the process of doing that, he has taken those first century commoners, for the most part just common people, gathered on the side of a hill up close to the, or right off of the shores of the Galilee, uh, Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has been very systematically opening up a whole new world to them and by extension to us. And in this passage that we're at today, it's the last of six different examples that Jesus lays out as to what a righteousness that honors God really looks like. As a matter of fact, it all comes back to chapter 5, verse 20, the thesis of the entire sermon where Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been here for these sermons as we've gone through this, you're tired of hearing that, I know. But I want to continue to remind us that Jesus lays the basic truth out, and then he begins to expand on that and to give illustrations of what that righteousness looks like. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was very much an externally based kind of religion. In today's passage, the final of these examples, serves to wrap up this whole part of the argument, but it also moves us forward as we get into the stuff we'll start looking at next week when it comes to how we express our religion in our religious acts. So in chapter 5, verse 43, the last example now Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you are listening with both ears, there are several comments or statements that Jesus makes there that pushes us, that stretch us. The comment on the end, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a challenge. You thought only your mother-in-law was perfect, but Jesus gives us a little different angle there. 
There's another part of it they're talking about being his sons. What is he saying with all of this? Well, let's go back, and as actually most of the time this morning, I'm going to focus on the first part of the statement. You have heard that it was said. Jesus follows his pattern. He's reaching back to the Old Testament for the most part in each of these examples. He takes some of the teachings that they have that were part of their everyday life, and he uses that to say this is what this life with God needs to look like now. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, a new, fuller kind of teaching. So he starts now with the first time in all of these studies, all these six different examples, this is the first time that Jesus picks something from the Old Testament that also has something with it that's not in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have much of a problem with the, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. I've already done this. We talked about it last week, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 where Jesus says, he talks about revenge a little bit there. That's the law that's given to the children of Israel. Old Testament, wandering in the, in the desert, all of that kind of stuff, you remember? Well, he gives them that part of the law, and it becomes one of the fundamental elements of the entire law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus borrows from that. When he's asked later, what's the greatest commandment? And he says the first is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. So he's pulling here, and they have pulled there one of the key teachings of the entire Old Testament. We don't have a problem with that. We've heard that. We've talked about it. But what we do have a problem with is that second part. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is one of those places where we're going to find that 2,000 years of language difference is going to make a real difference for us. Nowhere in the Old Testament will you find that statement. Nowhere in the Old Testament or the New does God require us to hate our enemies. Now, I know that's a disappointment for a lot of Christians these days because a lot of Christians these days have taken that as an out for the way we treat people. But Jesus is taking something now that's grounded in the Old Testament, but now he's directly challenging some of the teaching of the first century religionists of his day. Because what they had done is they had taken this idea of love your neighbor and they had nitpicked it to death. One of the things that they had really zeroed in on was this idea of neighbor. Who is My neighbor. Now, I want you to keep your place here and go with me over to the book of Luke chapter 10. And normally, I don't make you move around in your Bible during these messages. But this one is an important point of reference for us. In Luke chapter 10, and it begins in about verse 29, but we're going to start in verse 25 to get the basis of it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold... A lawyer. Now, when you see that in the, Old, in the New Testament, it's part of this religionist crowd that I'm talking about. The professional scribes, Pharisees, those guys. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to the lawyer, What is written in the law? In other words, you're the specialist. Tell me what you have to say. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the guy answered Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, stop for a second. Have you heard that before? Where have you heard that before? 
from Jesus himself in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, I believe it is, 12 maybe. So what we find is a guy gives the right answer to his own question. And Jesus responds to him and says, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, now let's stop for a second. Why did he need to be justified there? He's asked the question, he's given the right answer, and Jesus acknowledges that it's the right answer. What is there to justify? Well, here's the deal. Our own answers usually hang us ourselves. It's one thing to know the right answer. It's another thing to live the right answer. And so Jesus actually has said, you got the right answer. You have it here in your head. Just move it to your heart where it lives out in your extremities. And so the guy recognizes that. He picks up on that. His conscience, his sin kicks into full gear here. And so desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor. Now, stay with me. This is critical because what he's done as one of the professional religionists of his day is he's picked up on one of the rabbinical arguments, the rabbis, the teachers, kicking back and forth from that Leviticus passage that we just talked about. They so nitpicked it to say, all right, we've got to determine if we're to love our neighbor, let's figure out who our neighbor is. And so for centuries they had been talking about trying to figure out, okay, who is my neighbor and by extension, who therefore must I love? Now, what's written into that question from the outset? Who can I get away with not loving? And so... This guy gets hammered by his own answer. Jesus says, you got it right, just go do it. He says, okay, well, let's just weigh in here now, teacher. Who's my neighbor? And what Jesus then does is responds by telling one of the most famous parables of all the parables. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to read it to you, and I'm not even going to take the time to tell the whole thing to you, but I wanted you to get the background on it from the outset. This guy pulls Jesus in to the discussion relative to Leviticus 19.18. Okay, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And who can I get by not loving? So we flash back to Matthew 5. And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. And now, what's the extension of what they had said? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So before I go any further, let me just stop and make sure we're all on the same page here. We should not think for a second that we're any better off than they were. Because our tendency is to love those who are part of us and to hold at arm's length those who don't fit in with us. I know that some of you think, now wait a minute, preacher, that's not what he says. He says, hate your enemies. Okay, so now we're going to have to pull that apart just a little bit. See, the word hate here is an interesting term for us. I've already talked enough about the enemies part for me to just draw that to a conclusion for you. For them, an enemy was anybody who was not their neighbor. Okay? And a neighbor, the way they explained it, and we find this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a neighbor was one who was a fellow countryman, in other words, another Jew. 
You see, the shocking thing of the parable of the Good Samaritan to those first century listeners was not the fact that the religious leaders who saw the guy beat up on the side of the road and didn't help him, that didn't bother them too much because that was normal for them. Jesus calls them to task on that part. Even the love your neighbor part, you don't get. The real shocking part for them was that it was the Samaritan, the enemy, who was the one who supplied the help for that person. Love your enemies. They would have heard your non-neighbors. doesn't have to be somebody who has warped you somehow. It just happens to be somebody who's not part of your circle. That's how they would have interpreted it. So now we're back in chapter 5. And we're picking up this word hate. And let's make sure that we fully get it. When we say, I hate, fill in the blank, what are we saying? How do we mean that usually? Let me give you a couple of examples. I hate Brussels sprouts. All right? I hate them. What do I mean by that? I really don't like them, all right? But even beyond that, see, there's some other things I really don't like. But I hate Brussels sprouts. There is an emotional investment in that statement for me, all right? You want to know just how much I hate them? Bring some to my house or ask me to your house and serve them to me, and you'll just see, all right? Because I'll have this dilemma all of a sudden. I want to be nice to people, and they're trying to help me out, but I'm going to have to eat this garbage, and I won't eat them, probably. All right? And I won't throw them across the room. I won't throw them at you. But I might feed them to your dog while we're... At... Let me say it this way. If you love me, you won't make me eat Brussels sprouts. Does that communicate? All right, now let me take it a step further. That's a true statement. I hate Brussels sprouts, okay? Let me give you one that's not true, but it, it'll make the point. If I said to you, I hate I see what I want to do is put a person in there, but I'm so afraid that that would not be understood correctly. You get it now? If I hate somebody, what am I saying with that? There is something going on inside of me that moves out of the mental to the emotional, and it's a problem. If you hate your dog, your dog's going to feel the wrath of your emotion in one way or another. But you see, it's, it's, it's so hard for me to even talk about it because I'm so reluctant to put a person into the blank because I don't want you to think I'm talking about people you know and I don't want you to think I'm talking about people I know. I'm just talking about people, all right? So we hear hate, and that's the way we hear it. An emotional, a reactionary, some kind of response that we have that is not positive in any sense. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, that's not the sense of the word that we find in this verse of Scripture. You see, in first century Jewish life, the word hate, as Jesus uses it here... And he's reflecting how they used it in their first century expression of living. The word hate is not an emotional kind of a thing. 
As a matter of fact, their hate, as he's using it here, is not even tied to some kind of an offense that somebody did to you. Their hate is actually the other side of love. Now, love here is the word agape. It's not emotional at all. It is a commitment kind of word. It is a decision, a test of the will that says, I will choose to invest myself in this person for their good. Okay? There's no emotion tied to that. There's no sentimentality. There's no icky, gooey, I love you. There's none of that stuff. It is a choice to involve for the good of the other person. The supreme example of that, John 3.16, For God so loved, that's the same word here. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that, right? You remember with me? You know the verse? I'll get our wanted kids to help us out if we need to. God invested himself in us. He did something for us that we could never accomplish on our own for our good. That's Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That's love. Hate for them was the opposite of that. It was not the investment. It was the distancing. Hate for them was the decision that said, I don't care who you are, or maybe because I know who you are, I'm going to dismiss you as a person. Love invests, love reaches, hate separates and distances. And in the process of doing that, it diminishes the other person as a person. Do you see the difference now? This is not one of those decisions where somebody says, well, you did me wrong and so because of that, I hate you. As kids used to say, I hate your stinking guts. This is worse than that. And this is the one that the net gets thrown and catches nearly every one of us in it. Maybe all of us. Because this is the word that says, I'm just not going to have anything to do with you. No emotion attached to it. As a matter of fact... One of the things that makes it so insidious is the fact that there is no emotion. I don't even care enough about you to be emotional about you. You're just on your own as far as I'm concerned. You see the difference? They were struggling over the word neighbor. And in the process of figuring out who they're supposed to love, they took it as permission not to love other people. And so it's hate your enemies. It's into that mix that Jesus comes now And he changes the whole game on them. Before we do that, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Who do you hate? Now, my suspicion, I hope I'm right about this. I'm going to give you all the benefit of the doubt, okay? My suspicion is there's not a single person in here who just absolutely hates, and the way we use it these days, absolutely hates somebody. Just to make sure you know where I'm talking about, if you could kill somebody and you knew you'd get away with it, does anybody make the list that you would go after? If there's somebody on your list, if you knew you could kill them and get, get away with it, and so you'd go do it. If there's somebody on that list, you, you qualify for hating somebody, all right? 
But my guess is that none of us really hate people like that. But I, I feel just as strongly the other side of it is that every one of us has somebody in our lives and maybe lots of somebodies that we have just decided they don't count. They're not really people as far as I'm concerned. Distanced, diminished, dismissed as people. Now, I want to, you know, I said this in the early service. Sure enough, I had several people come up to me afterwards that said they had a bone to pick with me. Uh, I said, what did I do? They said, well, you preached that sermon. <laughs> okay, well, let me just make sure you understand, okay? You have to listen to about 30 minutes of this. I got to live with this stuff all week long trying to get ready for this, okay? So if God's hacking on you a little bit, uh, just recognize he's been hacking on me all week about this stuff, all right? It's much easier to sit out there than it is to be up here. In this case, this week, last Monday, when I sat down and I started kind of previewing this sermon, thinking through and started, the, you know, started kind of greasing the wheels of thought and where we were going to go and praying about it and all, I came to this question, who do you hate? So I started dealing with that on my own deal. You know, I, I've identified a few people. I'm not proud of some of this stuff. I just want you to know we're in the same boat here, okay? And our boat's sinking and we need to get some help. So let me just finish it out. I, there are several people in my life that according to that New Testament definition of the word that I just talked about, hate, the diminished, hold at a distance, treat them like they're nobody. There are several people in my life, in my experience, that I can say I'm guilty of feeling that way towards them. Now, my immediate response... When I got honest enough to admit that with God, my immediate response was, but God, you know they deserve it. Tell me you don't do the same thing. You know they deserve it because in this case, I'm thinking about one individual, town that I used to live in, where I used to serve as a minister, on staff, at a church. This was staff. Well, I preached a sermon, and out of several hundred people there that day, this one guy heard something that nobody else heard. And he started running me down around town, slander. I mean, people go into his place of business, and he would tell them why they needed to get rid of that sorry preacher up there. And then I started getting these phone calls. And I mean, this went on for years there. And other people going, I was there that day. I didn't hear that. Didn't matter if it was said or not. It just what he believed happened. And started, I mean, an aggressive campaign to slander me in that town. Well, I started thinking about that this week and praying about it. And you know what happened? Started getting hot. You remember what I said last week about revenge? The Road Trammel family motto is, you squirt me with a water gun, I'll run over you with my truck. What do you think slander fits into that whole thing? Bigger truck. <laughs> Going faster. Now, so that's... I'm, now, I'm talking me, but understand, I'm talking me because I want you to talk you, all right? So as I'm processing through that stuff this week, it starts churning again. And so my immediate response with God was, but God, you know, that guy deserves that. I, I was innocent in all of that. And God's response to me was, really? I didn't know you were ever innocent about anything. 
See, the fact of the matter is, sin touches all of us. None of us want what we deserve. But you see, we have this unique way of taking what somebody else does to us and amplifying that like it's all of a sudden the biggest thing that happened in the history of the world. And so that person then becomes not my neighbor now, they become my enemy. And by extension of that first century teaching, we like the idea of hating our enemies, our non-neighbors. And so what happens is often we get this internal emotional response that kicks in. And from our, van, our, our vantage point, it is, they hurt me, therefore this is justified. And the impact on it is that it causes a wedge. We disengage with that person. And so instead of what would be a unified kind of community thing like I talked about earlier where we're engaged with one another for the cause of Christ to help each other. Love reaches across. It doesn't back up. All those things. Instead of being that way, we disengage and now there's separation. And that definitively breaks much of what Jesus taught us is part of the Christian life. But another thing that happens, and it happens for all of us, is that it begins then to get into our heads. And so we start, it's like being infected with something. And so when this separation occurs and this wrong is done and then we begin to amplify that, it disengages us from them and then we're left only with our thoughts and our thoughts are wicked to the core in a situation like that. And the tendency is for us to rework it and to chew on it. As Scripture, we're supposed to meditate on it. In this case, we push Scripture aside and we meditate on the wrong that's been done. And all the time, it just builds this thing within us. And it pollutes our thoughts. <laughs> Teresa and I were watching a, a TV program years ago now. Uh, and we, you know, sometimes great truth, profound truth, you stumble on it. That, that happened this time. Uh, you remember, some of you may remember the old television show called Candid Camera. Well, basically the concept there was they, this TV producer would set up some kind of a situation. Uh, maybe punked is a little bit like that for some of you who know what that is, but not quite exactly that. But they'd set up a situation and then they would uh, film people, unknowing people who would come in and basically reveal themselves uh, in this situation. So we were watching, not Candy Camera, but something like that. And, and here's the scenario that they put out. It was like a mom and pop little convenience store of some kind. They had a camera mounted behind the, the uh, uh, counter there, this cash register was, and all that, so the person was working behind. And people would come in, and as they would come in and get whatever they're going to get, they would pay, and the, the shtick on the thing was that the guy would give them no change. So if it was $2.15 and they handed him a $5 bill, he'd take the 5 put it in the cash register, close it, and say, thank you very much, have a good day. And then he'd turn around and walk off. And so the deal was to watch people as they're being confronted with the reality that they didn't get their change. Oh, it's fun to watch people. It's better than going to the zoo. And especially when you start dealing with people and their money. 
And so it was hilarious watching these people. And some of them, you know, it might be two fifteen, and they pay two fifty, so they're going to get thirty five cents change. And they sit there and they don't get it. And I mean, they get irate. People get mad about that. Except for this one guy. And I don't remember how much he actually paid, but he paid significantly more than what they actually, uh, you know, what he actually owed. And so he should have gotten a lot of change back. And the guy said, thank you very much. Put his bill in there, closed his register and started to walk off. Thank you. Have a good day. And the guy just stood there and he kind of looked around and then he just kind of shrugged and he started walking out. And what he did then is he turned the tables on the producers of the TV because that's not the response they wanted. It just didn't bother him. So they stopped him and they said, hey, he didn't give you your change. And the guy said, no, he didn't. <laughs> He's still going to walk out. Well, doesn't that bother you? Oh, I don't know. You know, maybe. I just Whatever. So, so they start this process. Finally, the guy says this, a classic statement. I just decided I'm not going to let anybody rent space in my head. Let me tell you something. That's profound. So much of the mental energy in people's lives this day and age is dealing with what somebody else did or said or didn't do. And they're renting space in our heads. It's like I've said before about bitterness. I don't remember who said it first. I love the way he said it. So it's like drinking poison but expecting the other person to die. It just doesn't work that way. So this mental stuff that we go through, somebody wrongs us, and therefore they are by definition our enemy. The human way is to hate them, whether that's an emotional thing or just this dismissal that we've been talking about. That's the human way. But Jesus says that's not the God way. In our minds, it works on us, and it works us over. But even worse than that, when that occurs with us, there is a spiritual detachment that occurs. If I'm spending my mental and spiritual energies trying to get back at my enemy, then I have destroyed the fellowship between me and God. Because God says, you know what, I, this is a newsflash for all of us. God says, I love that enemy of yours as much as I love you. Hold on, God. Time out. Did you not hear what that guy said about me? What do you mean you love him? I know we never say that to God. But we want to. Or we think it. Here's the way I think it. God's smarter than that. He wouldn't love that guy. That's my dad used to call that stinking thinking. Because God, if I understand scripture right, I think I do. I think I'm right about this. God so loved the world. Doesn't just mean Mark and his friends. He loves us all. Even the person who is even today hammering you or your reputation. And so if God loves them, and I choose not to, who do you think's wrong? What do you think that does to our relationship with him?
And by the way, God also commands that we love them. That's this passage when you boil it down. That last verse, be ye therefore perfect as your father is perfect. That's the way it says I'll just read it since it's right here. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now we hear that and we jump to, oh, that means we got to be without blemish. That's wrong. That's a wrong interpretation of that word. Because you can't be that. Now you can be redeemed and you can be sanctified and all that kind of stuff, but you can't be perfect in the way that sometimes we think about perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're eating up with sin just like I am. This word perfect in the Jewish sense of the word means fit to fulfill its purpose. They said of Willie Mays years ago, he was the perfect baseball player. Now, does that mean he never dropped a fly ball? Does that mean every time he swung the bat, he hit it? That's not what it means. It means that he was the epitome of what a baseball player ought to be. That's this word. And so when Jesus wraps it up, the whole fifth chapter, all of these six different examples, going back to verse 20, oh, and by the way, it also goes back to verses 13 and following, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, get out there, be who you are, make a difference. And then Jesus turns right around and he says, if you're going to make a difference, you can't do it the way the Pharisees were doing it. And we take this passage and he says, you can't do it the way the world does it. Because the way the world does it is, if you hurt me, I'm going to run over you with my truck. Or at least... I'll just cut you off like you're not a person anymore, and I'll treat you that way. If the way of the world is, blow them away. If the way of the world is to disenfranchise them. If the way of the world is to communicate, you don't matter. What becomes the most visible way for us to be identified as the children of God? And the answer is treat people like God does. What we've seen multiple times is with God, people matter. Especially the ones who do you wrong. Jesus says that. Now we're back to the other part of it, very top, and I'm finishing up here so don't freak out. But I say to you, love your enemies and he gives us a method in case you need some help, and pray for those who persecute you. A breakthrough day for me with that guy that I was talking about. I was sitting outside of a business fixing to go in and do some stuff as pastor, and uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. Matter of fact, he was one of my best friends, and he had just gotten finished at this other guy's business, the guy who was running me down. And he called me, and he always did this. And I always want to say, man, just don't call me, okay? Don't call me and tell me what the guy's saying. I just don't need to know. But he would call me every time. And on this particular time, as soon as I saw that it was him calling, I thought, oh, man, here we go again. And all that stuff started inside for me. And God reminded me of this verse. And so I immediately began to pray for this other guy who was running me down. You know what? It was like chains fell off for me. Pray for those who persecute you. 
Last week, when I finished this message in here, not this one, but one we did last week, there was a guy who was visiting with us, and he came up and he talked to me down front here after the message. And uh, he was talking about this revenge thing that we were talking about last week, kind of part of this one. And he said this. He said, you know, uh, I found that when I'm dealing with people like that, I prayed this prayer. Lord, have mercy on them. That's profound. Because if you're praying God's mercy and God's best for somebody who's done you wrong, it's awfully hard to hate them at the same time. What you'll find is as you begin to pray this way, God will change your heart. It doesn't change that person. You're not going to change them anyway. That's a newsflash too. You can't change them. But you don't have to. All you can change is you. And Jesus says, be complete, perfect, just like your Father. Fit for the task. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we come to this time, we recognize that not a single one of us measures up. These are so basic and yet so advanced for us. Lord, I know that some of us, our tendency is to hold on to stuff that hurts us. We nurture it as if it was a baby in our arms. We hold that hurt and we try to grow it up into full-blown hate. And we're really good at that. In the process, we're destroying ourselves and other people. Father, I pray that this would be a turning point for us today. That you would help us to see where we stand with you. Please reveal to us anything in our life, even now, that's damaging us and other people. Where we have marginalized people because they don't see things the way we do or they've said things that hurt. Give us your eyes. Help us to see them through your eyes. To be able to love them as you do. Help us to make progress here. Because it is so hard for us.